Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Giles Turnbull. Based in Bradford-on-Avon, Giles is a communications consultant who, after an earlier career as a journalist writing about the internet and computers, founded Use the Human Voice, a company that helps both public and private organizations find their voice through clarity and brevity and bringing a thoughtful human tone to the ways people think and speak about the work they do together. You can follow him on Twitter at Giles T and check out his website at usethehumanvoice.com. Giles is the author of the book, The Agile Comms Handbook, how to clearly creatively work in the open. In the book, Giles offers readers a set of ideas and techniques to help teams communicate about work in progress, adjusting how they communicate in changing circumstances while at the same time adding a flair of creativity to what they say and how they say it. In this interview, we're going to talk about Giles's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and self-publishing and selling his book. So thank you very much, Giles, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself in your first career as a journalist writing about the internet and technology. Uh, mostly through a series of accidents. Um, I uh, grew up in the southeast of the UK in Kent by the sea. Um, and now I live in the southwest of the UK, slightly too far from the sea to be to be decent. I would prefer to be closer to the coast than I am. And um, I ended up in journalism in the in the early 90s, mainly because I was one of those people. And, and there were a lot of them then, and I suspect there are probably still a lot of them now, uh, who got to the end of a undergraduate degree and still had no clue what to do with their life. Um, that was me. Um, while I had been studying my undergraduate degree, I had written occasional contributions to student newspapers and student newsletters. So it was at a fairly drunken party where a friend of mine said to me, why don't you go into journalism? Because she, that was exactly what she was doing. Um, she, she had got her career much, much better planned than I had. Um, and I said, oh yeah, maybe I'll give that a try. So uh, I did. And uh, I went and did a journalism training course, which taught me a few things, but the most of what I really needed to, do, to know, I learned on the job. And I got my first job on a newspaper in Cambridge in the UK called the Cambridge Evening News, uh, back in the days when small, small regional cities could have their own daily newspaper. Um, and I learned the basic skills there. Um, one of the things that happened to me in Cambridge in the early 90s was that a cyber cafe opened about 10 minutes bike ride from my house. The, um, this was when cyber cafes were a new and exciting idea. And at the time, uh, as far as I'm aware, there were only cyber cafes in London in the UK at the time. And this was the first one to open outside of London. And it was just down the road from me. So um, I, I went and visited it. I wrote a, an article for that newspaper about the cyber cafe and I continued to do so. And I got to know the owner a bit and uh, he let me have some free time on the internet, which was quite a big deal. And uh, I taught myself about the internet at this cyber cafe. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, a friend of mine, a journalist friend of mine had got a job in London with a news agency called the Press Association. She phoned me up and said, you know a bit about the internet, don't you? We need someone who can write about it. Do you want to come down here and do some work for us? So I ended up being a, a journalist about the internet in London, uh, you know, it, almost entirely by accident. And uh, uh, that was the beginning of a, a specialist career in, in writing about the internet and technology and computers and software and stuff like that. Um, I have to ask you because it's a bit of a kind of uh, running theme uh, on the podcast because I moved to London a couple of times myself. Um, what neighborhood did you move to when you moved there? <laughs> uh, initially, uh, uh, I stayed in my grandma's house in, in the very north bit of London in Edmonton. That, that was just a few months. Then I got married and my wife and I bought a house at the, at the almost the diametrically opposite side of London in the south, in a place called Penge, um, uh, which is near, near Croydon and Beckenham and that sort of area of South London, if you know that. 
Yeah, I used to live in Beckenham Hill. Um, okay, uh, there you go. Yeah. We're practically neighbours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, what was that, actually, just very briefly, what was that like moving to what they call the, the big smoke? Uh, it was it was fine. I mean, we, we both my wife and I at the time had jobs in the centre of London. And this is, this is the mid-90s at this point uh, when property was affordable. And, uh, you know, we were, we were earning peanuts and we could still afford a small two-bedroom house. Uh, so we did. And um, we, we chose where we lived based entirely on uh, commuter railway lines. We, we, we basically followed the commuter railway line out of Victoria Station and worked our way southwards to a point where we could afford a house and said, right, well, we'll look there and see if we can buy one. And we found one and we did. Um, and it was it was a good time uh, uh, to live there because a lot of our friends lived not far away. So we knew a lot of people in the area and that was nice. Um, it didn't feel very big smoky, to be honest, because it's the suburbs of South London. It doesn't feel like the big smoke at all. It feels like quite a small smoke. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Actually, one of the reasons I ask about the neighborhood is that, you know, I mean, everybody knows this about every big city, but, you know, like where you actually live is sort of very different. It's not all it's not all just one one place. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so there you were, you were the first um, internet correspondent for the Press Association. Um, and it's, it's sort of funny, um, I've interviewed quite a few people on this podcast who found their ways into careers in technology one, one way or another, but for people who kind of came up in the 90s, it's a pretty common thread is I was the only one who you know, um, I was the only one at the company who could make web pages, you know, I was the only one in town who could set up a server rack, you know, I, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it's interesting that, that, that I'm sure that's the true of any sort of new thing that there's, you know, people don't expect to, but they find their way into it through sort of accidents, like, you know, being the one at the internet cafe who, who, uh, you know, has access for free. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that was like. I mean, there you were at the beginning of, of the web, um, writing about things. Did you have any big scoops or anything like that? No, because I was a terrible journalist. Okay. This, it took me several years to grasp this. Um, uh, I, I didn't realize I was a bad journalist at, at, the, at first. I, I'm not a bad writer. I can write okay, but I didn't have the, the hunger for the story that good journalists have uh, because I really wasn't that motivated. I didn't really care much. Um, but um, the, the crucial thing that happened in those years for me, as you pointed out, is, is at the time, there weren't many people in journalism who really understood how the internet was working and the, the potential that it offered and the consequences that, that, that were enabled by it. Uh, there, I wasn't the only one at the Press Association. There were, there were other people there, but we were a small group. And... Um, uh, we, I, I made the most of that and I made the most of the opportunity to meet lots of people and make lots of contacts in what was then quite an exciting scene in London. Um, the, the, the first dot-com boom, I suppose it must have been, uh, when there were loads of new companies starting up. There was lots of exciting internet activity happening uh, and there were lots of people to go and interview and talk to about all sorts of things. Uh, which is what I spent a lot of my time doing. And it was it, it was largely because I made those contacts and met some of those people that some other interesting stuff happened later on in my career that I su suspect you might ask me about in a minute. Uh, yes, actually, that was where I was going to go <laughs> yeah. next. I'm just, I'm just sort of, you know, going in reverse order on your uh, LinkedIn profile here that I'm looking at. Um, but uh, yeah, so, I mean, eventually you ended up um, being a consultant for and then... Um, actually being a, for the government and actually being a civil servant is that is that what you're expecting me to ask you about next yes that was, that was uh, quite that was about like the, about 2010 or 2012 or something like that yeah so that there was a decade in between when i was mostly freelancing and doing childcare and sort of juggling those two things at the same time but then um uh towards the end of that decade uh some of the people that i had got to know as a, as a reporter writing about the internet in the late 90s, uh, they started to get involved with government in the UK and particularly with the, the creation of um, a new website called gov.uk, uh, which was 
created to replace literally hundreds of government websites that existed at the time, all of which were funded differently and commissioned differently. And some of them were good and some of them were bad. And uh, none of them shared any common navigational techniques or common uh, uh, methods of writing copy or anything like that. So uh, a, a small team was created in government to start doing something about that. And they built initially an alpha and then the beta of this new website called dove.gov.uk. The team was growing and growing and growing, and it took on more responsibilities within government, not just making gov.uk, but doing other things as well. Um, things, things that consultants would label under the heading digital transformation, but not everybody likes that term, especially quite a lot of civil servants. But uh, I got a call uh, uh, during this process at, at the point where the team was, was trying to uh, expand its influence mainly with the rest of the British civil service. Um, they, they wanted to uh, make their work make sense to the rest of the British civil service in Whitehall, which is thousands and thousands of people. And so uh, they hired a small creative team of writers, um, uh, filmmakers, photographers, producers, um, and I was one of the writers on that team. And our, our job was to, to make GDS, that, that was the name of the organization, make it understandable, make it accessible, make it visible to the right people. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really fascinating subject. Um, and just to sort of build a little bit of more, more scaffolding around that a bit, um, I, uh, I, I memorized the number, I think it's 1,882 uh from from a couple of talks that i'll link to that that you've given that are on youtube that people can find They're actually relatively recent as well uh talking about this um so there were 1882 or so uh uk government websites all of which had been commissioned by different people and designed and built by different people and although as you say that you know the quality varied some were good some were bad it was collectively a giant mess um and particularly you know the way people think about the government if they think of it as a unitary thing and like i want to I want to talk to the government. I want to find out from the government what what things are, and so after this initial kind of you know Cambrian explosion or what have you of of, of diversity and evolution, people realized actually um, uh, diversity and evolution are good things, but there should be a central coordination um, behind this, and very particularly. Um, uh, one of the interesting features of, of, of sort of the culture in the UK, there's, there's, um, there are groups that advocate for, you know, measuring how much beer foam gets in people's beards. Um, uh, <laughs> not, not joking. Uh, so you can see, so you can make sure people aren't being taken advantage of by paying for beer they're not drinking. Um, but there's also clarity associations. Um, there, there are actual groups about like public speech should be clear and understandable by people. And so this move isn't just, it's not like, I just, I just, so people listening might be thinking, oh, it's like, this is actually like from the ground up. Like this is a, a sort of, it's the government doing it like and in, in response partly to some catastrophic IT failures as well. But the idea was like, let's really think about it. Let's really simplify it. Um, and let's be coherent about it. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about, yeah, what your experience was working on this like very important and transformative project. Um, I know there was, for example, a poster that you made um, with a, a yellow poster uh, to sort of help people get on board with new jobs in an organization without having to read a sort of 80,000 word document. Yeah, okay, I'll come to the poster in a minute. The, 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 you asked what it was like working on this transformative project. It was transformative for me. It, it changed my life. I, I have a, a strong feeling it changed quite a lot of lives of the people who worked there um, and still work there to this day because, uh, and, and you know, that, that might sound hyperbolic, but it, it genuinely did uh, make an enormous difference to my career. Um, because I learned so much because uh, the organization was full of so many smart people who were so much smarter than me. And, uh, and I was able to spend a few years learning an enormous amount from my colleagues um, about the nature of good communication. Um, and I, I, I say in the, the book that I wrote and published on LeanPub is uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to write it 
had I not had that experience learning from those colleagues. Um, it, 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 everything that's in it came from working with them. Um, in, in terms of the day-to-day -day experience of it, it was, it was exciting and challenging and uh, sometimes stressful, sometimes a great deal of fun. Uh, working with a spectacularly talented and lovely team of people um, who were who were the, the creatives and the communicators um, in the organization um, that was a privilege frankly and um, I, I consider myself profoundly lucky to have had that privilege um, government had not before before GDS came along you, you made this point about how the people on the outside, the citizens, see the government as a, as a single entity. And that is true. When, when people are talking about dealing with government, they very rarely refer to the particular department that they're having to deal with. Sometimes they do, but not very often. Um, they will usually just say, oh, I, I had to apply for a new passport. I had to get a new driving license. I, I phoned the government. You know, I, I wondered where my, ben I didn't know what was happening with my benefits. Why haven't I had my benefits? I'm going to have to call someone at the government. And part of the point of the Gov.UK project was making sure that information about what is behind the scenes, an immensely complex set of organisations, making that all appear as clear as it possibly can to the end user. To the point where they don't need to know what department they're dealing with they don't there they, they simply shouldn't be that that is not something that they should have to worry about or care about and gov.uk uh, as a whole was designed and built to meet needs rather than uh, needs of users rather than needs of organizational uh, uh, departments so it wasn't about um uh, I work in the Home Office and I need to publish this information about passports. It was all about, um, I am a citizen, my passport has only six months left on it and I need to apply for a new one. Tell me what to do. Give me a series of steps to follow. Step one, step two, step three. Just make it easy for me so that at the end of it, I get my new passport and I can go on holiday. It was, it was all designed with that in mind. Um, the, the clarity of the communication was something that, that, that ran as one of many threads through all of that work. Um, and our team's job was, was, we weren't working directly on GovUK, the product. We didn't, we didn't help build those web pages. We had very little to do with that part of the work because there was another extremely talented team doing that. But our job was explaining that work to others. Um, that meant that as GDS continued to grow and expand, uh, we had to explain that work to people who may or may not want to come and work for us. Uh, and we, we were recruiting like mad. Loads of people were coming and joining the organization. So a lot of the, the open working that we were doing, a lot of the publishing blog posts and stuff like that about the work um, had this fantastic um, side effect which was that it, it, it helped people understand us. And that helped, once they'd understood us, that helped them make the decision, should I apply for a job there or not? And we, we know this is true. People told us in job interviews when they arrived, oh yeah, I've been reading your blog posts. I really wanna work here because I've, I've been reading about what you do and it sounds really exciting and amazing. I want to be part of it. So we had that, we had that feedback loop. Um, one of the consequences of that was that um, there was a time some years later when my team was recruiting new writers. And I found myself idly wondering one day, wouldn't it be nice if there was something that told you the things that it's nice to know when you start working here, but that it's nobody's job to tell you. So I'd started writing a list. I shared it around the team uh, various people on the team chipped in with ideas and we, we edited that list as a team, turned it into uh, a, a, a finished list. And then uh, one of the designers, Sonia Turkett, um, turned it into this gorgeous uh, 
eye-catching bright yellow poster with black text on it. And we printed a few of these and stuck them up on the walls. And it, it went down very well with the team. Uh, it went down very well more widely. It's an idea that's been uh, copied and remixed now by quite a lot of other organizations, quite a lot of other government organizations, not just in the UK, but around the world. Um, and most recently, uh, last year, uh, Google used the idea uh, for some internal team activity that they were doing. Uh, and they, they, they sort of kept the yellow color, uh, but they changed some of the words. They changed quite a lot of the words, actually. Uh, so it's, it's been a great uh, joy watching that idea uh, spread further and ripple outwards and see the different ways that different teams and different organizations make use of it. Yeah, there's um there's a lot there's actually a lot to unpack there um uh particularly um uh one of the one of the driving forces behind a lot of this is um the assumption that people are too busy uh which is one of one of your one of your theories and that so and, and you tell this great stories again I'll link, I'll link to a couple of these talks where you go on these you go on about these things very clearly and at length and in detail and it's fascinating to hear about how um you know, sometimes when you're getting onboarded at a new organization, you might get, like I said, you know, an 80,000 word document and you have to tick a box as you, as you describe, you know, saying, I read it, no one does. Why is there an 80,000 word document? Because there's all kinds of cruft and kind of um, self-involvement that get built into kind of working things when, and because people forget that A, everybody's really busy and B, what are the actual needs that need to be addressed here? And it might sound sort of very simple, but actually the, the usefulness of a poster that's like, just look at this nice looking poster. I, maybe I didn't even have to ask you because it was eye-catching and you already looked at it. Here are all the things that we don't normally say to each other, but should just be taken for granted. You know, it's okay to say you don't, you don't know the answer. It's okay to say you made a mistake. Um, uh, that's incredibly important, not just for and so when we talk about and we'll get to the book uh, agile comms, but when we talk about communications, it's people might just think, oh, how do I act in Slack or how do I write an email? But it's kind of all how you're communicating is is all around you. Yes. And. And people are really good at verbal communication. It, it comes naturally to most people because, you know, we're, you and I are doing it right now. Verbal communication uh, is something that we all grow up with. Written communication is different. Written communication is, is something that most of us learn at school. Um, and at school, you get taught a set of rules about how to write. And uh, then if, uh, as you go through senior school and you take the exams, you know, in the UK, they're called A-levels. In other countries, they're called other things. But you take a set of exams that prepare you to go to university if you go to university, then you're taught to write uh, in, in, an, in another very set, prescribed sort of way. And by the time you've come out of education at whatever level and you start in the world of work, um, my theory is that you've, you've had years and years, you've had at least a decade of instruction in how to write in one particular way. And the chances are that you're pretty good at writing in that particular way. But it's not necessarily a way of writing that is well suited for communicating complex ideas to busy people. Um, it's not a way of writing that is particularly engaging or interesting or lively, because uh, particularly if, you've, if you're one of the people who's ended up going through university, you are, you are very strongly encouraged in your essays at university to not be those things. You are, your, your job is to be um, a, an academic researcher and to keep your writing as dry and as straight and as academic and as rigorous as possible. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, that uh, academia requires that. But when you come out of it at the other end, uh, I, my theory is that, that there are still a lot of people who emerge from education into the world of work and still haven't been taught, haven't learned uh, how to communicate uh, in an accessible way and how to communicate where you really need to understand the, uh, the perspective and the circumstances of the person at the other end who will likely be reading what you write. 
um, and that is partly what the book is about. Yeah, it's it's really interesting too um, that 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 uh, touching on there on this sort of experience that people have going through the education system with writing. Um, there's there's one sort of like in, in a sort of sense positive and one in a sense negative feature of it. One of them, it, the the sort of sense that's true, is that you you're always being graded. You always have in mind that you're going to be giving this to someone to evaluate in a very particular way, and there's probably going to be a grade. Um, and then that that's going to carry with you forever kind of thing, right? And there's some people who just don't care and that's fine. But, you know, if, you, if you're really thinking about that context of, of writing, it's like, my God, like you get conditioned to be quite worried about your, your, your thing and like the, how it's going to be received. But the second negative feature it has is that it's not time stamped. Um, uh, what, what you produce is supposed to be in a sense finished and timeless. Um, and this is one of the things you talk about. I think you have this great phrase of uh, blog post being a time-stamped thought. Um, and that is a really fascinating idea because it, when the thing about a blog post is that it is, and I, I just, I bring this up because I hadn't quite thought about it quite concretely in those terms before, but like, it's not just that it's time-stamped, it's that that brings with it the feature of being part of a succession of events. Um, and so when you talk about writing about, you know, how you should be communicating about with your colleagues and with your stakeholders and your audience about work in progress. You've got to keep in mind that what you're producing isn't the final word, uh, the final timeless answer, that this is part of a continuum. And people are going to drop into it at various times and places and in various contexts as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, the, the, the longest chapter in the book by far is the one about blogging because I have a lot to say about it. And part of that is because of this this um, experience I had in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, back in the days when blogging was new and exciting and the big wild thing that we were all going to do on the internet forever. But then, of course, social media came along and changed all of that. Um, and uh, the, the argument I make in the book is, yes, blogging is old fashioned. It's old hat. You know, the only people doing it uh, personally are, are old geezers like me with nothing better to do with their spare time. Um, but it still has value as an activity for teams or organizations that want to tell a story over time. Um, and you don't have to call it a blog if that troubles you, and it does trouble some people. Um, you can call it something else. You can call it a journal or a notebook or an insights library. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, as you say, you have these time-stamped thoughts, and you can link one to another, and you can link a series of them together to create a sub story within the longer story. You can tell stories about teams, stories about products, stories about strategies turning into realities. All of this stuff you can do with just something really simple and basic like a blog. Um, one of the benefits of that for an organization is that uh, because your blog is a storytelling platform, that the, the, each individual blog post is an empty box waiting for you to fill it with something engaging and something interesting. And the more creative you can be in that empty box, and you, you don't have to be wildly creative, just a tiny bit of creativity is all you need to, to really bring in readers who might otherwise be expecting something quite dull. And if, for example, they're, um, they're coming to the blog to read about activity in a government team, they're probably initially not expecting something really fascinating. But, and they probably won't be expecting something that maybe cracks a joke. But if you can be fascinating, or if you can crack a joke, you've got them, you've got their interest. They're gonna stick around longer. They're gonna hang around for more. They're gonna maybe come back to read about you again in future. And this is why I argue that this, 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 uh, this way of writing doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. It's something you can learn. It's something particularly that teams can learn as a team with everybody on the team editing each other and encouraging each other to be more creative. Um, and the upshot is that if, if you adopt these techniques and you do it right, you can end up telling uh, a really interesting story about topics that at first glance, most people would think, well, really, that's interesting. But it, you can make things like um, uh, fishing licenses interesting. You can make things like uh, technology platforms 
interesting. Um, all of these different things, uh, and even web development, you know, the writing of code, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, uh, writing that stuff and, uh, uh, and uh, putting it on the web uh, is usually not that interesting unless you are a web developer, but you can make it interesting to everybody if you add that little sprinkling of creativity on top. Uh when you mentioned phishing licenses and things being interesting, that reminded me about um, some recent controversy between um, France and the UK, kind of post-Brexit about phishing rights and how that became um, quite the quite the exciting topic. Um, uh, and it reminded me also one of the things you've been, one of the organizations you've been working with is DEFRA, which is the government department that sort of communicates and works with farmers and, and rural areas. And post-Brexit, they've been very anxious um, and in, in addition to that, often had, I mean, and I, I come from a rural part of Canada and I understand very well the often antagonistic or at least suspicious relationship that, that farmers in particular can have with the government. Um, and openness in communication in things like blogs or in explaining we don't know, we don't really know what we're doing either right now can actually really help establish trust in a way that can seem paradoxical to people who think that actually what you should be putting on as a front is that we're never wrong and we know exactly what we're doing and that's the kind of government that people want to relate to. That's not true. Uh, if, you, if you show the mistakes, if you tell the story, here's what we learned, that can actually really, and we're, on, we're learning ourselves, that can really help draw people in. Yeah, and, and that, so that, that aspect of humility, of, of uh, acknowledging that you, you, even though you are a government department with responsibility for policy in a particular area, acknowledging that you still don't know all the answers, uh, that takes enormous courage. But there is a team at DEFRA in that, that particular bit of the UK government who have that courage, their leader has that courage. Uh, she's a woman called Janet Hughes, and she has been using a blog to, to communicate with the farming community um, about changes to government policy that have come, come about as a result of Brexit. You know, there used to be um, uh, grants available, funding available for farms from the EU. That money is not going to be available anymore. So instead, the UK government is providing money itself. But all of this is an immense change for a, uh, an industry that, that doesn't feel like it's been well looked after by the government over many decades. And there are, there are quite a lot of people in DEFRA itself who would very happily, readily admit, you know, we, we didn't used to communicate with the farming community very well. Um, and that relationship... Uh, it needed to get better and the way to make it better was to uh, was to build trust with the community and the way to build trust with the community was own openness and honesty and humility and that's why Janet and her team at DEFRA are doing a terrific job of communicating in the open with the blog where they are publishing lots of blog posts they're publishing, publishing lots of podcasts um, and they are they are very clearly indicating that they are listening to the farming community, um, which as you will know, if, 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 as you say, you come from this, this rural background, no two farms are the same. The soil in your neighbor's farm is gonna be different to the soil in your farm. Uh, your neighbor might have a river running through their land and you don't, all of that stuff, it's all different. So meeting needs here suddenly becomes an order of magnitude more complicated than it is for some other government services. The only way to really engage an audience like that is to, uh, is to be honest about what you know and what you don't know, and to, to be open about how you're willing to change. And they've done that on the blog. They have changed policy as a result of farmers saying, you proposed X. Well, it doesn't work for us. We're not going to be able to do X. What are you going to do about it? And the response has been, we will change the policy. We will change X to Y to make it easier for you. Uh, they've, they've documented that thought process in public in a series of blog posts. It's been very successful. It's a, this is a really fascinating topic that I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an on the outside observing rather than being on the inside like you've been. But, um, you know, I could talk about it forever. I mean, particularly the 
the way that there's a certain type kind of mindset that hears terms like humility and openness and thinks weak and vulnerable. Um, and it's exactly the opposite. The hard ass thing is to be like, no, no, like, here's what, here's what we really know. And here's how little that amounts to, you know, the hard ass thing is to, is to be open and tell the story. Um, it's not, it's not a vulnerability. It's not a weakness. It's a very profound strength and getting, getting past the, the mind, the sort of reactionary mindset, uh, when it comes to that kind of thing, I imagine is probably one of the biggest, biggest challenges when you're working within an organization, working with people who are watching it and going like, this isn't how the government should be presenting itself to the people and things like that. And it's like, you didn't, you didn't just talk to someone who's like, you solved a problem for me and now I can dig my ditch. You yeah. know, finally, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, if you're going to be a hard ass about it, you, you might get people, you might bully people into submission, into seeing your way of doing things, but you won't earn their respect. <laughs> you, all you will get is, is you know, uh, uh, antipathy from them or fear or loathing or worse. You know, uh, that's not the right way to behave with people generally, I don't think. And, and being... Trying, trying to show that you, uh, you as an organization are capable of learning, which, which implicitly implies, implicitly implies, which, you know, <laughs> what, it, what that implies is um, you are capable of making mistakes. And we know that's true. Every organization makes mistakes. There isn't a single one that doesn't. And, and the, the corporate attitude of attempting to of pretend that you never make mistakes, personally, I find not just off-putting, but downright ridiculous. No, no sane individual would stand up and say, I never make mistakes, and no organization should do the same. Every organization should be quite happy to say, yep, we are humans just like everyone else. We make mistakes, but we recognize that, we learn from them, and we, we do something as a result. Just in the interest of time, I think we should move on to start talking about your book, uh, your actual book. Okay. <laughs> move on to yeah. the next part of the interview. Um, so uh, we've been talking a little bit about clarity and simplicity of communication and things like that. But uh, as, as you yourself say, there is a time for technical terms. Um, and there's one in the title of your book, um, the Agile Comms uh, notion has the word Agile in it. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk, you get to it right away in your book, but at the beginning and anyone who buys it will see that right away. But um, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to the word agile. How, how are you using it in, in the book and when you, when you talk about it generally? Uh, I, I, almost every day, I think I should have perhaps called it something else, <laughs> but, but it's too late. I'm calling it that now. I'm, I mainly called it that because the, the, the term agile comms had had started to be used by various people in various circumstances and it felt like it it lined up with what what i'm talking about um, and what i'm talking about or the the nonsense that i get paid to talk about by my clients felt like it needed a name it needed a a, a label that i could give it um, the word agile causes a lot of ructions with a lot of people for all sorts of reasons, um, and uh, I am I am not an agile fundamentalist. I'm not I'm, I'm not like saying that that if if something is going to be agile, then it has to work in a particular way. Um, my use of the word agile in, is entirely related to flexibility. That's all. Um, I'm. I'm proposing ways in the book that a team, any team, not just a software team, but any team working on anything can communicate about their work in progress at the same speed as the work moves ahead. That, that's the kind of agility that I'm trying to, to express in the book. If, if you have a team working on any sort of output and the nature of the output changes from one week to the next, which hopefully it does, then you, there, there are ways 
that you can write about that work. There are ways that you can organize your team to write about that work in such a way that you can update your blog or, or you can make some kind of note or public announcement or something. You can talk about your work as fast as the work is moving. Most, no, that maybe not most, a lot of organizations that I have worked with have, have struggled with that in the past because normally there is communications about work is seen as, uh, first of all, something that is very separate from teams that are doing work. That's one thing. Uh, the communication is also seen usually as something that happens only at very specific intervals. Uh, the beginning, maybe the middle and the end. Um, and I'm arguing, well, um, if you want to influence people who are interested in your work, or if you want to make them interested in your work, then it's, it's good to, to tell that story much more often, much more frequently, and as quickly as the work itself. Therefore, you need to, to, to be a bit more agile in the way that you organize your, your team. And that means you might have to uh, have creative types, writers, for example, working with your team, and if your team is an, a software development team and they are using agile ways of working, then your writer needs to needs to know about that and understand that at the same time. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, and that actually sort of uh, gives me an opportunity to talk about something very specific. So um, one of the things that I find really interesting about, about the, the work that you do is that, you know, you're talking about talking, right? Which, which brings with it this kind of inherent kind of like it's, it can be a little bit kind of... Um, you have to do a little bit of a dance in your mind to kind of do things like that. But you bring these very clear kind of categories, uh, linked categories to ways of thinking about communicating. So for example, um, layers of communication. Um, uh, I'm just thinking specifically about like on the bottom, you just think of a pyramid on the bottom of which is detail, then the next layer up is context and the next layer up is allure. Um, and I find this categorization very fascinating, right? Because as you talk about detail, for example, it's like if you ask somebody, what are you working on, right? Your typical answer is to give all the detail, right? As though you're talking to someone who's you, <laughs> not even a teammate, someone else who's also you, you know, I, you know and, and, yeah. and, and that's fine if the other person is you or maybe is on your team or does something that you want. And that's what they were asking you about was give me the detail. But when they ask you what you're doing, you, it's often, you know, if you, if you have this set of concepts that for example, you give, you know, available to you, you can go, wait, hold on a second here. Should I talk about the details? Should I talk about the context? Or should I talk about the lure? And so, for example, if you're in the elevator and the minister asks you what you're working on, uh, the best thing to do is to give them a, a lure, which is like, I'm, I'm helping farmers uh, deal with their anxiety over Brexit, as opposed to you know, the thing is that, you know, the legislation has changed in an article 510.2 on ditch digging, blah, 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 right? That's the detail. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. And specifically, I know you get asked about this, but you know what, can you talk about the lure, the lure aspect of communicating? Okay. Um, most teams that I encounter, uh, when I first encounter them, if, if they are already struggling with communication in any way, Nine times out of 10, it's because they are communicating by handing over the detail. When, when other teams come to them or when leaders come to them or other stakeholders, whoever it is, and says, what are you working on? Or at what, uh, how much progress have you made? Then one of the, the most common problems is, uh, well, here's, a, here's a, a link to a Google Drive. It's got 400 files in it. That is our project. Go see, right? And of course, the person at the other end, that, that's not a helpful answer for them. They don't have time to work through your Google Drive. They have no idea what the important stuff is in there. What they need, what they want, is something much, much shorter and much, much simpler, but also something that makes it easy for them to find out more if and when they need it. So you asked about the lure. Um, the team that I worked in at uh, the government digital service was headed by a man called Russell Davis, who was hired in from uh, a career in the world of advertising. He brought in a lot of 
advertising sort of thinking. Um, and the lure that I'm talking about borrows a lot of ideas from that world. If you're going to, if, if you're, if, if what you need to do is attract someone's attention and that person is not already paying attention to you, then you need to lure them. You need to put something sparkly and shiny and dangly in front of their eyes and say, come and look at our work because we think that you will be interested. That means if you're gonna do that, you need to be just as creative as the kind of people who are making adverts on the telly or on your computer or on, on the cinema screen. You know, you need to make something that is that is going to provide that shiny, dangly, oh, enticing interface. And that means you need to be creative. You have to put a little bit of spark into that, a little bit of poetry, a little bit of life, a little bit of love into that tiny, tiny thing to make people pay attention to you. Now, not all teams need a lure. Sometimes the, the, the job you have is not to make people pay attention to you because sometimes the people you're communicating with are already paying attention to you. So you don't need to lure them in. Uh, but what you might need to do is still give them something, a brief update or uh, um, uh, an introduction that, that provides just enough information. Uh, this is how I define the context. It's the context is something that helps the reader or the outsider make a decision. It helps them decide, do I know enough now? In which case I'll stop and I'll go away and do something else. Or do I want to know more? And if I want to know more, where do I, where do I get it? How do I find it? So the, the context layer, the, the three layers work as a path. The lure brings people in. The context helps people decide, do all, is, is, is what I need just the basics or is it more than that? And the, the final thing the context layer does is provide that link onwards through the path to the detail layer. So it says, okay, now that you do know the basics, if you do want more information, if you do have half an hour free in your diary, you can go and look at this detail um, because it will, you will need half an hour to read it at least. Uh, just this afternoon, I've been working on, on a project with an organization. In fact, it's three different organizations all working together on a particular thing. They have a need to communicate simply and clearly about a matter of policy. And my job this afternoon was going through uh, pages and pages and pages of documents that each, each of those three organizations has already written over the past five or six years there must have been 20 or 30 of these documents some of them were 200 pages long all of these different documents exist and this this was a huge huge pile of detail there effectively and one of the problems that these three organizations had was that nobody understood what was going on in this policy area because nobody has time to go through a list of 20 or 30 documents some of which are 200 pages long yeah, no, that's a thank you very much for sharing that very specific kind of form of problem, right? Because, you know, it can sort of, it sort of, it can sound abstract, but actually this is exactly the kind of thing that people who work in big or even small organizations encounter all the time um, is having all this detail uh, and produced by very different people. And like, even, you know, going into it, you know, like people might be very attached to that 200 page document that they spent six months writing. And it, it can sound easy to say, oh, like, let's adopt these sort of clear practices. And then you run into somebody who's like, I spent six months on that document, you know, like we can't, you really want to throw it away with, with, a, with a catchy poster, you know, um, and uh, I mean, that, 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 I mean, that's the, you know, we could talk for hours about that, about that as well. Um, but the, but, but the personal yeah. element of things as well, right? Yeah, uh, but I would say that so there's, there's a couple of issues there. One is, who, who wanted the person who wrote the 200 pages to write 200 pages? Could that boss who commissioned that work have done something to make it shorter? Did it need to be 200 pages in the first place? Maybe it did, right? Let's assume that there are good reasons why it's that long, in which case I'm not arguing and I wouldn't argue that you should throw the document away and only have a poster. What I'm arguing is you need a way to make people 
aware that the document exists. You need a way to uh, give them just enough information to help them decide whether they need to set aside the time to read it. And then you need to provide a link to it or make it available to them in such a way that it's easy for them to get to once they've decided, yes, I want to carve out time in my diary and read this whole thing. Uh, you just gave me the greatest podcast interviewee gift of a great segue, which is um, if, if, if you want to know, if you want to set aside time to read Giles's book, uh, the Agile Comms Handbook, and you want to know where to go, um, you can go to the website, agilecommshandbook.com. Uh, there you'll find a link to where you should buy it from, which is LeanPub, where you can get the ebook. But um, you, you actually uh, have print copies as well. Um, and I know you've got many of them. I saw you tweet about it earlier today. Um, and uh, we say for the last part of the interview, we save it for the kind of nuts and bolts of self-publishing. And so, I mean, we'll maybe just take five minutes to do that in the interest of time. Uh, but so you've, 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 uh, you actually created a print version of your book, I believe, long, long, quite some time before you, you made some, an ebook version on LeanPub. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about that because the book is very, very well produced. I know you hired an, an editor and I know you hired a designer for it as well. In fact, I think you mentioned her name that you that you worked with her previously for the GDS is that right? Yes so um, my editor was Amy McNichol, uh, the designer of the book was Sonia Turkut, both of them are former colleagues of mine from GDS and, and without their skill and talent and patience that book would never have happened so I'm enormously thankful to the both of them for, for helping me with it. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you. I, um, we'll make sure to link uh, you link to them actually, like in your in your book right at the beginning as well, which is very great. Um, and that's a very good for other self published authors. I mean, these these kinds of finding people like this that you can trust and you know are good can be very hard. So please please check them out if you're thinking of making getting an editor or, or or having someone design a book for you. But one of the really fascinating things that you have to do if you want to make a print copy is you have to iterate. Uh, on uh, using print on demand services, and then and then you have to make a decision. Uh, in your in the way you're doing it is like how many copies do I buy for my first run when I've decided you know I'm ready to go and I actually wanted to ask you specifically how did you decide how much to spend and how many copies of the book to buy because you're you've, you're going through the classic thing of like I've got boxes and boxes of books in my garage or or wherever it is or my office how did you just make the decision how much to spend on your first print run um, so. The, the route that I've gone down to end up here where I have boxes of books is exactly the opposite of what I wanted to do in the first place. Okay. In the, in the first place, I wanted to do print on demand and I wanted to have nothing to do with the distribution process at all because I, like the people that I describe in my slide decks, everybody is already too busy most of the time. I'm too busy as well. I don't have time for that. Uh, and I spent months um, trying out a print-on-demand service. And the, the, the short version of the story is that, yes, they were capable of printing books on demand, and yes, they had the, the necessary hooks to make the book appear on online uh, uh, sales services like Amazon and others, but the quality of the printing was terrible. It, it simply wasn't reliable. And I, I ordered a bunch of different test copies in different batches, uh, some of them directly from the, from the print-on-demand supplier and some of them via Amazon. And essentially, uh, they were all just slightly different colors. Some of the fonts were, were sort of smudged and dirty. Uh, there, were, there were weird print production errors on some of the pages. And when I contacted the print-on-demand service about this and said, what what's going on here why can't you fix this please um we, we went through a lot of back and forth about it but the end result the, the ultimately the answer was we can't do anything about it because that's how print on demand works um it, it you're, you can't guarantee the kind of quality you want with our print on demand service so i iterated <laughs> And I realized, okay, I'm not going to be able to do what I wanted to do. I'm going to have to do what I didn't want to do. I'm going to have to print copies in a batch. Uh, and I'm going to have to keep them in my office. And I'm going to have to stick them in the post myself. Um, unless I pay my, my teenager to do it for me. And occasionally I do do that. 
But um, as far as deciding how much to spend, the, the whole point of this project was not to make a profit. Um, and I'm, I'm just about scraping, breaking even on, on the cost of the print and all the other costs associated with making the book. Um, the point of the project was to uh, uh, raise my profile a bit, frankly, you know, to get to get more people interested in my work so that I can get more clients. And in that respect, it's been successful. Um, I didn't I didn't set out with um, a particular figure in mind for how much I'd spend on the printing. I'll say now it's been several thousand pounds. Um, and every time I do another print run, it's a few thousand more, but it's been money that has been, that, that I think has been worth spending because it, it's, it's helped my business grow. And that was the point in the first place. Um, all of it, as far as I'm concerned, has, has basically been my marketing budget. <laughs> so my marketing budget is a book. Yeah, no, thanks very much for sharing those details and the story of, of going from, you know, having one assumption about how to do it and having to sort of pivot to, to something else. Um, the, the, the example you're giving of, of, of uh, writing and self-publishing a book as a consultant in order to raise your profile is a, there are, that is a classic story that many, many consultants do. Um, back in the days when um, our company was um, bootstrapping, we were doing consulting work and our by far our most lucrative client pirated uh, two of my colleagues' books um, <laughs> uh, and was like, I really like to work with you guys. Um, uh, and um, so the st basically sort of like stolen copies of these eBooks were led, led to, you know, our, our you know, biggest client relationship we've ever had. <laughs> and so uh, writing books is a great way. And it, and the thing I like about it, and, you know, one of the reasons like, you know, I do what I do is that it's like, it's the most genuine way of drumming up interest is actually writing a book because it takes a lot of effort and it's right there whether you know what you're talking about or not and whether you can do it well or not. And so if the project succeeds, it's, you know, it's kind of because it was a success in the first place. Yeah. Um, uh, on that note, I guess the, I, I can't let you go without asking you the last question. We always ask guests if they're, if they're, if they've been using LeanPub, um, uh, which is uh, if there was one thing we could feature, we could build for you or do for you, or if there was one terribly annoying bug or crappy part of using LeanPub that we could fix for you, uh, is there anything you can think of that you would ask ask our team to do? Uh, make make it so that the the navigation doesn't change, and and the, uh, so lean, the, the the interface to LeanPub I think is is a work of art. Frankly, you're doing an amazing job, particularly because people like me are are simultaneously several kinds of user. We, we have user needs as, as authors and publishers, and that's one set of needs to meet. But we also have an account that means we can buy books. So we're, we're buyers. That's another set of user needs to meet. Um, and then there's, there's, there's a sort of sales and marketing set of needs. You know, how many copies of my book have I sold? Oh, look, another one. Hooray. There, there's another set of needs there. But um, what seems to happen when when you're moving around the site is that when you, when you traverse one of the boundaries between those sets of needs, stuff changes at the top of your screen uh, that makes it hard to find the thing you were looking for six hours ago, for example. That, that would be the only comment I have. There are so many things that I absolutely love about LeanPub, particularly the, the, the browser-based editor. Um, and as somebody who has spent many, many, many years writing almost everything in Markdown, I, I really appreciated being able to, to create a book out of Markdown uh, using plain text. That was, that was one of the things that made me think, yep, I've got to go with LeanPub. Um, thanks very much for the very charitable framing uh, of, of that uh, feedback. Um, you captured, you actually captured it perfectly, the challenge, which is that um, LeanPub is used by people to discover and buy books. It's used by people to read those books and download them or read them in the browser. Uh, and it's also used by people to um, write books, 
It's also used by other authors just to, they, maybe they've got their entirely own process for creating eBooks and they just, they, as it were, just sort of upload to LeanPub, but then use all of our storefront. And then, and then there's the storefront features that you've got to manage as well, like pricing and all that kind of stuff. And so, yes, it is. I mean, and like I, I will, by the way, like I always share this feedback with, with the team because it's, you know, this is kind of gold for us, right? But we've, we've iterated many times over years on the design and there is this fundamental challenge of like, can you unify all of this under one um, design kind of framework? And currently we, we as it were, I say still, because you know, we, we know the challenge is there and we know that we're not at the end point, but we still kind of have a kind of basic divide between what we call the reader app and I guess the storefront and the author and the author app. And the author app itself, as you pointed out, again, there's the writing if you're in the browser, there's also all the storefront stuff, things like that, communicating with readers and things like that. And so um, the, the, I will say for anyone listening, um, the escape hatch is that little hamburger menu on the top right. Um, from, from, there, yeah. from there, you can kind of, you, you, you'll, you'll see, and you'll see the problem that Giles is, is pointing out is, 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 it's like, that's actually, we're really proud of that little escape hatch, but, but it, 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 it itself shows you the problem, right? Because um, the left-hand menu is like author, uh, you know, library. And, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, well, if you go to author, then it's like, oh, well, it'll say books, and courses and bundles, right? If you go to library, it'll go books and courses, <laughs> you know? And it's like, yeah. well, library is for readers. They want to they go to their library. They want to go to their books. If you're an author, you want to go to the books that you're working on. And so like, the, like I very, like, but like, thank you very much for articulating that so well, because that is exactly capturing the problem and the problem's real. And it's something that we are, always working on to improve. Um, well, uh, thank you very much, Giles, for taking some time out of your evening uh, to, to talk to me and to talk to our audience. And thank you very much for using LeanPub as the platform for the ebook version of your book. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here today. I've enjoyed our chat. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.